I'll be reading from John 12, 12 through 33. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he, was called, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that they are getting nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was with, with Basada at Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves you, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now all the, ru the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word. Well, I love the triumphal entry, and I love Palm Sunday, because it's the one time, maybe with the exception of the transfiguration, it's the one time that Jesus finally gets the honor that he deserves. If you think about Jesus' life, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he did that for his whole life. He served people, he was betrayed, he was not honored, he was not glorified, and then in this moment, you finally get people treating him like a king. But it's short-lived, because only five days later, these people will chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the question I want to ask this morning is, why is that? Why is it that you finally get this moment, Jesus is king, and he's being worshipped as a king, and then things go south so quickly that he's held up on a Roman cross as an example of what not to do when you encounter the Roman Empire? 
See, Jesus came to be a king, but he didn't come to be the kind of king that the people then expected. And this story of Palm Sunday is about a reversal of expectations. There are so many expectations in this story and about Jesus being king, they get changed. And the first set come for the people in Israel at the time who are awaiting not a king, but a feast. So you might have wondered, why all of a sudden when Jesus is coming in, do these people shout out with hosannas, and where did the palm branches come from? Where did they get those? Because I'll tell you, they're not easy to come by, palm branches. And so you, they have palm branches, they throw down their coats, he's coming in, you're like, this seems very orchestrated to me. Well, it is. Here's what happened. Imagine that you're in the first century, and you're a young person, and your family is getting ready to go on vacation. And vacations then, holidays, which were, we get holy day is where we get the word holiday, you didn't pick where you were going, you just went to Jerusalem every year. So it's like, where are you guys going on vacation this year? Jerusalem. Same time as everybody else. Because for Passover, every Jewish person that could would take their whole family and they would come up to Jerusalem to celebrate what God had done when he brought the people out of Egypt. So every year, your family gets together. You're going to spend a whole week and probably several days traveling going to Jerusalem. And it was that time of year. And so imagine you're in a huge caravan of people and you're all coming towards Jerusalem. You're going to see people you haven't seen all year. You're going to sing songs and read scriptures and eat a meal that you eat once a year to celebrate the most momentous occasion in Israel's history. When God took a million Israelites out of Egypt, they crossed over on dry land through the Red Sea, he brought them into the Promised Land, and all the firstborn of Egypt were killed, but the Israelites were spared. That's the Passover. So as they're coming up to Jerusalem, what they would do is they would sing songs to prepare their hearts and to prepare their minds for Passover. And what's kind of cool is we actually know what songs they sang on these occasions, because they're in the book of Psalms. So if you look at the book of Psalms, there are these headers in the book of Psalms that tell you when some of these songs had been sung. And Psalms 120 through 134, if you look in your Bible, are called the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent. And that's because in the country around Jerusalem, everything was low and Jerusalem is on a mountain. So if you're going up to Jerusalem, you're literally going up in altitude and you would sing the Songs of Ascent. This is what we sing when we're on our way up to the temple, up to see God. And at Passover, there's a special set of songs that you sing called the Hallel. Now, Hallel is where we get the word hallelujah, and it means highest praise. The highest praise that's reserved for God alone. These psalms, starting in 113 and going through 118, are the songs that you would sing on the way to the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, the reason they're called the Hallel Psalms is because 113 starts with Hallel, praise God, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, who from this time forth and forevermore reigns. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is going to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above all the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home and a joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So imagine that you're singing that song and others like it over and over and over again as you come up to Jerusalem. 
And the other Psalms go like this. They rehearse the history of the Exodus in Psalm 114. In Psalm 115, they predict that God will return and reign with his people forever. Psalm 116 is a great thanksgiving praise. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he's inclined his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I believe even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars, but what should I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Think about how excited you would be if you're singing these psalms before the Passover. Now, the great Hallel psalm is Psalm 118. And this is the one that they would have sung as they were coming up. It's the last one of this group, and it's going to sound familiar to you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, and you can almost see that loud, obnoxious person in the group being like, everybody now, Israel, let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And they talk about, I cried out to God and he answered me. All the nations have surrounded me and he answered me. The Lord cut them off. And you get to this point where it says, open up the gates of righteousness, which are the gates of the temple, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. When you get to verse 25, it says something interesting. In our Bibles it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. But in the Hebrew it says, Hosanna, Yahweh. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord. So as the people are coming up to Jerusalem, they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Some point, there's going to be a king who comes and saves. Now imagine again that you're in the same group and you're singing these songs and you realize that once you get there, there's all this expectation that God might do something like the Passover again. He might wipe out our enemies. He might save us as a nation. He might install a king over us and we will be at peace the rest of our days. Well, there were all kinds of little things that you did with these psalms. One of them is you would wave palm branches when you sang these songs. And the palm branch is a symbol of the strength of Israel. So they would print these on coins. They would put them on pieces of clothing. It was a symbol of Israel's strength. So when they were waving palm branches, they were saying, strength to Israel. Save us, O God. Install a king that will give us peace. And the rabbis at the time had all these rules about what you had to do with these psalms. I hope you're getting the sense through this whole series in John, because John wants to make a special point. The rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes, they put so many rules on what you were supposed to do that no one could actually see what God was doing. But this is actually a pretty good rule. What they said was, anytime, anywhere, not just at Passover, anytime you hear someone say, Hosanna, Yahweh, we pray, O Lord, save us, you have a religious obligation to say Hosanna back. Okay, so it's one of those things, if you're anywhere as a Jew and you hear someone saying Hosanna, or you say someone saying, save us, we pray, you have a spiritual obligation to say back, Hosanna, save us. When I read this this week, it explained so much about OU fans. It wasn't even funny. Because I'm, I'm convinced that they have the same thing, a religious obligation when you say that six-letter word that I won't say up here, and you have to respond with something in return. So imagine all the way to Jerusalem, people are doing that over and over and over and over again. 
And the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees took this very seriously. If you ever hear a Hosanna, you must respond, Hosanna, save us, O God. So the crowds are coming in. And in church, you have a religious obligation not to say that. Now, so the crowds, are, the crowds are coming in, and people are shouting that out. And so there's all of this partying and uproar and celebration. And word gets around that somebody is claiming to be a king. Imagine, you've been thinking about this the whole way up that someday there's going to be a king. And this year, when you get to Jerusalem, there's a king. And he's coming in, and so... All of a sudden in John, it says people heard that Jesus was coming in like a king, and they thought, this is it. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to set himself up as king. He's going to kick off the Romans. We're going to live at peace forever. It's a new and better David who's going to lead us into a new promised land. Our lives are going to be everything we hoped they would be because God has finally brought his king to Israel. So as Jesus comes into town, he's riding on a donkey, Actually, there's a little bit of uh, difference here in the text. He's probably riding on a donkey's colt. So he's he's not even riding on a full-grown donkey. He's riding on like a Shetland pony donkey. And there's something really wrong with this picture. Okay, so king is coming. What do kings look like? Warriors. So when David was king, he looked like a king. He was a warrior. He was a man of blood. He had honor, and he was wearing kingly attire. And Jesus is coming in on this little bitty donkey, and he doesn't look like a king. Now, he probably looks better than the way he's typically portrayed, you know, with like the bed sheet and the Miss America sash that, you know, he wears in these portrayals. But he's wearing a tunic. He looks like a craftsman. He is not royal. He is not honorable. He is coming in on a small donkey, and people are praising him as a king. That should have been the first indication that this is not the kind of king we're expecting. In fact, what John does is he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, and this should be set out in most Bibles because it's a quote from a prophet, and it says, Behold, Israel, your king is coming to you on a donkey's colt. And in Zechariah 9, it says, Humble and lowly on a donkey's colt. There's something different about this king. So Jesus comes into town, and he is going to do something in the other Gospels we find out. He's going to do something that no king would do. He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to turn out the money changers. He's going to flip over the tables, and he's going to get people out of his father's house. And in that moment, every good Jew would have been wondering, what in the world kind of king is this? Because there's two expectations in the Old Testament. On Christmas, usually, we read from Isaiah chapter Nine. And this is a wonderful Christmas passage for us, but then we sometimes forget that this was their expectation for the whole year. In chapter 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will do this. Well, that that sounds like an awesome king. But the problem is Isaiah also says things like he says in chapter 53, which we read on Good Friday. So we, we have some of this same confusion about what kind of king Jesus is. 
In chapter 53, it says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. And then get this. Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. This is in the same book of the Old Testament. And the Jews struggled to say, what kind of king is he going to be? Is he going to be a triumphing king, or is he going to be a suffering servant? What kind of king should we expect? And in fact, what the rabbis did is they decided there were going to be two messiahs. There was going to be a suffering messiah who who died on behalf of the people, and there was going to be a reigning messiah who was going to come and be a military figure and throw off all of Israel's enemies. They couldn't reconcile what it would look like to have somebody who fulfills both Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53. And what you see in Jesus is he's exactly this kind of king. In Psalm 118, back to the psalm we were talking about earlier that says, Hosanna, right before that is a passage the New Testament authors quote all the time. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that was rejected, the suffering servant who was rejected, has now become the reigning king of Israel. So all of this is going on, and John wants to clue us in to what kind of king Jesus actually is. And I love this passage right afterwards. We only get this in the, in the Gospel of John, although the triumphal entry is in every Gospel account. Jesus comes in, and the others, it tells us he goes to the temple, he cleanses the temple, but John's going to tell us something that happens first. So all the Pharisees are cursing Jesus, is effectively what they're doing in verse 19. But there were some Greeks who came up. Now, when you read Greeks, think not religious people. These were people that couldn't worship in the temple. They were not religious. They were not considered among the Jews. But they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, this is an awesome line. This is a great line. Sir, we would love to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. I actually was at a church one time where they had this verse on the pulpit right here. So every time you preach, you see this line. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, which is the goal of all of our preaching, all of our worship, all of our quiet times, all of the things that we go through is we want to see Jesus. And the Greeks say, we want to see Jesus. And then the disciples play telephone. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew went to Philip, went to Jesus. Jesus answered them, here's how you see Jesus. Now listen to this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's not what a king says. Kings don't say, now I'm going to be glorified by dying alone. What Jesus is wanting them to see is, your expectations of what kind of king Jesus is going to be have to be completely 
flipped if you see what God is doing through Jesus. A seed falls into the ground, and if you give it enough time, it looks like it's dead, but it begins to grow and bear fruit. And you may have heard the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that goes into the ground and dies. It looks like that's the end. And then all of a sudden, things start to sprout up from this seed. And before you know it, you have a huge tree that's bearing fruit, it's useful, birds are nesting in it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not like an earthly kingdom where it's just up and to the right all the time. We're used to narratives that follow this shape. Things were bad, and then they go to good. That's not how the kingdom of God works. I love C.S. Lewis in one of his essays argues that God's stories, the stories that God tell, all have a similar shape. This is kind of like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? This is the way that Jesus likes, this is the way God likes to tell stories, and Jesus' story is this way. God's stories start out good. Think about the beginning of creation. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then what happens? Things fall apart. Adam and Eve sin, they're away from God, they get humbled, they go down to the very bottom, and what does God do? He redeems from the pit, he redeems from the very bottom, and then he glorifies God's stories in the Bible almost always have this shape. Things get way, way, way worse. In fact, they look like they are dead. And then God raises things from the dead. This is how God loves to tell stories. And this is how Jesus' story is told all over the New Testament. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 4. This is one of the most famous passages in our Bibles. And Paul is basically giving them a lesson in humility. He says, I want you to have this mindset among yourselves, which is, in yours, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he had everything. He had all of the divine attributes, all of the power, all the glory. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he humbled himself, and he made himself nothing. And in fact, that phrase means less than nothing. You could almost translate that as he made himself as good as dead when he came to earth, taking on the form of man. In fact, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He went even further down than you could ever have imagined by being put to death on a cross. The cross is a symbol, not just of death, not just of torture, but of humiliation. So in the ancient world, when you mentioned the cross, it was something that you would say, not, not now. Don't talk, about the, don't talk about crucifixion right now. It's too gruesome. It's too ugly. You wouldn't talk about it in polite company because what they would do is they would take people outside the city, they'd put them on a hill, and they would strip them naked and beat them to where you couldn't even recognize them, and then they would nail them to a cross. And what that did was it told everybody who came into town, unless you want this to happen, don't cross us. Jesus is crucified. That's admitting defeat on a level that you never would have expected. Jesus is completely crushed and pulverized by the Roman Empire. It doesn't get any more embarrassing for the Jews to have their king humiliated on a cross. Now think about what's happened to the cross. Probably a dozen of us in here have a cross necklace on. We have a cross on the front of our building. We have a cross on our pulpit. This is no longer a symbol of shame. It's a symbol of triumph. Because the way God tells stories is, when you go to the very worst that things can get, when you go to the cross, you get the most humiliation, the most death, the most worst than you could ever have imagined, God begins to grow from the seed that died. 
God begins to raise things up from the dead. That's the way God loves to tell stories. And so Jesus is humbled even to death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about what a crazy shape this story takes. King of the universe has everything, comes down humiliated, is dead, and now he's exalted above every name. That's God's kind of story. That's the story that God loves to tell. And God rarely takes the odds-on favorite, the strongest, the most likely, the best, the brightest, with no setbacks, and bring them to total success. You may know a story like that, but they are so rare. What God loves to do is take the unlikely and the people you would never expect and the person that wasn't equipped and prepare them and restore them and redeem them and raise them up and exalt them so that the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, look around, guys. Not many of you were rich and famous. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you are well-spoken. But God takes the weak things in the world to shame the wise. He takes the things that you can't even believe exist to shame the powerful. This is how God works. He took a Jewish carpenter, humiliated him beyond anything you could have ever expected, and he is God in the flesh, the king of the universe. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. Yesterday is the anniversary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's death. And some of you know who Bonhoeffer was. He's a very well-known theologian from the middle of the 20th century. And his story is so fascinating because he was relatively famous before the 1930s. But when that happened and the Nazis came to power in Germany, he started getting an unbelievable amount of pressure to bow to what the Nazis said to say and not say. So he writes a letter to a group of pastors in London, and they invite him to come and pastor a couple of churches in London. They just say, you know what? Things are going to get bad there. You need to get out of there. Come to London, pastor these churches, write. You can do so much good from here where it's safe. And in 1939, Bonhoeffer writes a, a letter, or this is in 1933, he writes a letter to his friend. He says, simply suffering, that is what will be needed not parries or blows or thrusts such as may still be possible or admissible. The real struggle that perhaps lies ahead must simply to be suffering faithfully. So he goes over for a few months and he's completely, totally restless. And he goes back. And by 1939, he's on a list of pastors that are not approved. They are on the lookout for them. They're going to be arrested. And a group of people in the U.S. pay for him to come to the United States. So they have everything arranged. They've got everything paid for. All they need is for him to join up with this group. They're going to sneak him out of the country, bring him safely to the U.S. Here's what he says. I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian church in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of the time to come with my people. Think about all the excuses that you could have made. You can do so much good if you just stay alive. You could do so much for the church afterwards if you would just make sure that you're safe until this is over. And he says, I will have no share in that if I don't suffer now. What Bonhoeffer knew is this is the kind of story that God tells. Now, it didn't turn out like we might have thought. He survives, it's awesome, he becomes really famous, and he's really impactful. No, in 1945, it's uncovered that he's been a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, and they execute him on April 9, 1945, in a concentration camp. And his books, and his writings, and his letters have sold millions and millions and millions of copies. 
He's way more impactful, way more famous, way more well-known, way more helpful now than he ever would have been if he would have fled Germany then. Why? Because they used to say in the early church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When people watched what he did and they said, whatever kind of king he's serving, that's the kind of king I want to serve. They began reading what he was saying. They began looking at how he's interpreting the Bible. His story, from a worldly standpoint, was a total failure. String of bad decisions. Should have avoided trouble, should have gotten out of there, should have preserved your life. But what God had for him was a gospel impact beyond anything he ever could have done in his lifetime. This is the kind of story that God tells. Now, how can we have this kind of confidence? How can we have confidence that Jesus, who loves to tell this kind of story, is going to do anything for us that would be worthwhile and joyful and grace-filled? It sounds like that's going to be a lot of suffering. So I want to point you to the book of Revelation where we don't see Jesus anymore as a suffering servant. We see him as a triumphant king. In the book of Revelation, John walks into the throne room in heaven. And it's in the middle of a worship service. And so all of the angels and the elders and these heavenly creatures, you know, the ones with all the wings and the eyes and the wheels and the horns, are all worshiping God together. And they're singing, hallelujah, praise God, glory be to God, now and forever. And John walks in, and it's the time in the ceremony when you're supposed to have a scripture reading. And they pull out this big scroll, but the scroll is sealed. And he begins weeping because there's nobody there who is worthy to open the scroll. And so he looks at somebody and says, who could possibly do this? And one of the elders who's standing next to him quotes from Genesis 49 says, just wait. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come and open that scroll. So John's looking for a lion. And you probably know this story. In chapter 5, it's not a lion that appears, but a lamb. And it's not just any lamb. It says, a lamb who looks like he's been slain. Think about this for a minute. You're in heaven. You're in the heavenly throne room. God, the Holy of Holies, the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne. Everything is beautiful. There's a sea of glass. And all of a sudden, you have this bloody, slain lamb. And it's like, couldn't you have cleaned him up a little bit in the resurrection before he came in? But the slainness is the point. Think about this. When Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to his disciples, he has a resurrection body that can never die. He doesn't need anything. He is totally self-sustaining, and yet he still has holes in his hands, in his feet, in his side. Remember, because Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe this unless I see it. And so the disciples bring Thomas to Jesus, and they say, look, and Jesus says, feel the wounds. My hands, my side, my feet. In other circumstances, these would be wounds that you should die from. In fact, Jesus did die on that and the compounding wounds that he had. So why in the resurrection does he still have those wounds? Because part of the point of the resurrection is to show that nothing that can happen to you in the resurrection can ever do anything to hurt you. The reason the lamb is slain is because the only reason he was going to be worthy to open that scroll is because he died. In fact, this is what they say in the book of Revelation, is they're praising him when he comes. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power and glory. For you created all things, and and through you all things exist. And you're worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Here's the point. The only way that Jesus reigns is having died. The only way we rise is having died. 
The only way that we walk in what God has for us is dying to the things of the world, dying to the things that we have given our lives to that we're apart from God, dying to the desires that we have that are uh, away from God. The only way to live in the kingdom of God is to be like a little seed that goes into the ground and dies. And once that happens, you bear fruit forever. You bear fruit for eternity. And nothing can ever take that away. Jesus reigns forever as a lion who is a slain lamb. This is the kind of story that God loves to tell. He has people who look like they have been through hell. But by doing that, they will never spend a day apart from God. They will be with him forever. He tells stories about people who have gone through so much that now they know the only thing they can count on is God. They look like their Savior who, to the very point of his own death, knew that God's way was better than his way. Later in this passage, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what should I do? Should I ask God, spare me from this? And he says, this is the reason I came. This is the only reason I came to earth is because if I die, I can bring God a people who will be with him forever. He's not an earthly king. So I want to conclude by pointing out two more things. The first one is that God, through our prayers and through uh, serving him, changes all of our expectations about what a triumphant life will look like. In the 16th century, John Knox, who's one of my heroes of the faith, if you've ever heard of a Presbyterian, you, should, you are thankful to John Knox. He is the reason the Presbyterian church survived in England. And John Knox was one of those great heroes of the faith. Mary, Queen of Scots, hated John Knox, hated him so much because he was Protestant. And she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Because John Knox said famously, one man with God is always in the majority. That's what, it, that's what it means to get the kind of king that Jesus is. Though it looks like the world is reigning, though it looks like the world is more powerful, though it looks like we as Christians better get on board with what the world is doing if we want to have any power and influence, the kingdom of God is coming and expanding, and it will never be defeated. This is the way God tells his stories, a savior who saves by suffering for his people, a king who reigns by serving. A lion who looks like a lamb who's been slain, an eternal and all-powerful God who's crucified and killed for his people, but then rises from the dead. A father who turns his enemies into his friends. And in the same way that Jesus reigns that way, his people have been called to do the same thing. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you shatter our expectations for what power looks like, for what authority looks like, for what dominion looks like. Lord, thank you that when you rode in on that horse that day, on the, on the donkey's colt that day, you weren't going to be an earthly kind of king because if you were, we would never have heard about you. Father, if you had settled for meeting our immediate needs, whether it be what's in front of us now or what was in front of them then, Lord, we never would have had what we have now, eternal life, rest in you, life with you, your grace and your blood washing us from all sin. So Father, help us now to see you for the kind of king you are. Help us to understand what it means to live in your kingdom, a kingdom of sacrifice and a kingdom of selflessness, a kingdom where we follow you and not our own desires. Father, give us the assurance that your kingdom and your king will reign forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray.